Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15. I'll read on the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's word declares, And I will give you shepherds according to my heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Then it shall come to pass, when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given as an inheritance to your fathers. But I said, how can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage of the hosts of nations? And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from me. Surely, as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. A voice was heard on the desolate heights, weeping in supplications of the children of Israel. For they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Indeed, we do come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. For shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down in our shame and our reproach covers us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning as we continue our service. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us, thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning in this place uh, for this purpose, to uh, encourage and strengthen one another and build each other up in our faith and our walk with you, um, certainly. But Lord, above that uh, is to magnify your name, to worship you this hour in a corporate fashion. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege that you give us to do this for the opportunity to take time aside from all that is in this world that we might focus our attention clearly upon your word and your son Jesus Christ and the uh, wonder of your work on our behalf. And Lord, we rejoice in it this morning and we do uh, thank you for a season that we can uh, focus our attention upon your coming and its purpose and and uh, gives us opportunity to witness of that to those around us. And Lord, we pray not only for our opportunities that are afforded us in this season, uh, but also we think of our brethren in Haiti and in, in uh, India and Peru. Uh, we think especially in India during this season. And we pray that uh, as they seek to decide how they can uh, minister in an environment that is not allowing them to do their traditional uh, worship patterns uh, this season. And Lord, we pray you might give them boldness and courage and that they might have a strong testimony there. And Lord, we uh, continue to thank you for their ministry and the part that we can play there. And we continue to lift them up before you. Uh, And Lord, we do also thank you for the ministries here, for our World Life Clubs, for our Skate Park Ministry, for our Sunday School Hour. And and Lord, we just thank you for each one involved there in the work and, and diligence they put there for our nursery and junior church and music ministry for every facet that is necessary to uh, 
have this happen, that we might um, uh, minister one to another and thus minister before your throne of grace. And we do thank you for that. And Lord, we do, again, lift up before you a number that we missed today, uh, perhaps because of the weather or uh, uh, physical needs, uh, because of travel or work responsibilities. Lord, we lay them before you. We pray you might encourage them, our prayers for them, and uh, that you might uh, continue to strengthen and build them up. And Lord, we uh, do pray for those that choose not to be here, and we pray you might bring conviction in their life, that they might see the the need to obey your command, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Um, that, uh, again, was a problem throughout the church age, and we pray that we might uh, be faithful and uh, recognize the great value of being together uh, on, on a regular basis, to sing your praises, to lift up and share our concerns one with another, uh, and to bring them before your throne of grace, and to be spend time in your word and fellowship. And Lord, we again commit this time to you and pray you might work in it mightily. We do thank you, Lord, for the great abundance that you gave us, certainly spiritually in our salvation. Uh, but Lord, we also uh, carry a great uh, material abundance here. And we pray that you might help us to be wise stewards of that. Uh, and that we might uh, seek every opportunity to minister through that and not just uh, uh, expend it on our own comforts, and that you might give us uh, that grace to see that those needs this season uh, and every season. Uh, Lord, we do also thank you for the uh, leadership that you've brought in our life, for the authorities that are there to uh, help us to live at peace is their purpose, and we thank you for them, whether it be within our home, within our church, and within our community, our nation, and the world. And Lord, we pray for them, and we pray you might uh, uh, continue your work through them until uh, you're coming. And we do uh, pray for uh, those that do not know you, as Savior and Lord, as always, that they might come to that saving knowledge that uh, perhaps through the witness of our testimony of our submission to authorities and or walk in your uh, truth that it might uh, uh, give opportunity for us to share uh, their need and how you have met that need through Christ Jesus. And again, we rejoice in the privilege of worshiping you this morning. And we praise this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we um, did not get as far as planned last Sunday. And so, and I took a full hour and five minutes last week and still didn't get finished with chapter three. So um, this morning we are going to do that, and I'm not going to press into chapter four. Um, I'm looking at a, at a service uh, next Sunday for uh, celebration of our Lord's birth and uh, focusing on that. I want to finish up chapter three with really just two barrels for you this morning. And uh, if I get done a little bit early, I think you'll be okay. You aren't going to dock my pay, are you, Bill? Uh, you think about it? Okay. Um, if that's necessary. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Uh, before we look into the promises of God to those who respond with repentance. And we had a call to repentance last week. We want to see what happens when God's people do repent and what that looks like and sounds like this morning. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the opportunity to look into your word this morning and, and for the privilege that is ours to have it before us in our own language, uh, to have your, 
your uh, spirit within us to illuminate it to our minds as well as to our hearts uh, to bring conviction and uh, comfort both. And Lord, we uh, just rejoice in this place and this time that we can uh, look into it together. And we pray that you might guide us into your truth and that uh, you might guard this time, not only from error but from distraction, externally and internally, that we might uh, bring our attention to bear upon that which you would have for us today. And then that we might allow it to impact our lives uh, each day. To your honor, glory, and praise. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we saw the call of God to uh, Judah not to be like Israel, but yet they were, had become worse because Israel had slid into their sin whereas Judah knowingly having the example of Israel prior to uh, her trouble sometimes uh, went into it with eyes wide open and God's uh, determination that that uh, uh, was of a more uh, vile slide into sin and would need to be more strongly corrected. And we have within this scenario, this description Uh, God coming back to Israel, and in the midst of a prophet that's primarily interested in Judah, we have here a promise to Israel um, that in the midst of repentance that there is God still waiting. And this is uh, a wonderful principle uh, that we want to see its fullness in, but we also want to see its condition. We often say, well, God is always there to forgive. God is always there to take you back. And we communicate that. Uh, and, and I think we do some injury to um, those that we communicate it to by saying that um, without qualification. Um, yes, it's true that when backsliding happens, us going away from God, that God never really changed. He didn't move. He didn't, he didn't uh, turn away from us. Um, and yet uh, we know that our sin, that brought upon that condition of either treachery or of backsliding, the two very closely linked words here used for Israel and Judah, that, that it becomes incumbent upon us to correct that. That just because God is there waiting, like the, the father of the prodigal son, while he goes out every day and looks down the road and longs that he sees the form, the shape of his son coming towards him, um, he is not going to go out there and search for the highways and byways for him, that that son must turn of his own heart, and he must come, and he must humble himself before the father, and he must come and do it the father's way, to the father's house. And so while we say that God is always ready to take someone back, it sounds like he is um, uh, willing to compromise to do that. And so we need to be careful in our description of that to recognize that while he is waiting, he is not moving. He stands in righteousness and holiness, and he will not compromise that. The ones who must move are we who have slidden away, we who have gotten ourselves caught in sin, who have become unfaithful while he has been faithful always. We are the ones who must humble ourselves. And so when we describe God in those ways that that are genuinely true and God makes it very clear here this is how you treated me but here's how I'm prepared to treat you 
um, we must recognize that it is always conditioned. And we're going to see that condition borne out um, in this passage um, by an introduction of something that we're going to see common in Jeremiah, um, where we're going to have Jeremiah responding on behalf of the recipients of the prophecies of God. And we see it uh, beginning really by God describing what, what is it that God holds out if we'll simply uh, return. And that was verse 14 that we ended with, return. And, and what is it that God holds? And God goes into really the first introduction in Jeremiah to the future of what he really has in, in store for them. And he comes right away um, by directing their attention toward their most sacred and most, most prized artifacts that they have um, in the temple. Uh, remember that, is, that Judah was saying, oh no, God will never destroy this place. Why? Because this is his holy mountain, and on this holy mountain is this temple, and in that temple is the Ark of the Covenant. And so God would never allow that to be destroyed, and so they took some kind of false assurance in this, uh, oh, let's put it in, in Christian terms, in the doctrine of eternal security. They took full assurance that there is no way that any army could do any damage, uh, and God wouldn't allow that to happen because of the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, in the temple on the mount in Jerusalem. And so with that as their anchor point, um, they felt that they had the liberty to live however they liked, and God will tolerate them because he has to, because the Ark is there. And so Jeremiah, well, God, through Jeremiah, comes and says, um, you know, that ark that you're so interested in, it's not an eternal thing. <laughs> it's, not, uh, it's not necessary for my worship. In fact, it's there um, as a reminder. And it's not the actual throne. It is a, an image. It is a, a, a dim reflection of something that Moses saw in heaven, the real throne surrounded by uh, the real celestial beings and not just golden ones, but true ones. And he says there's going to come a time when that Ark of the Covenant isn't going to be important. It's going to not be necessary. It's time has passed. And so don't anchor your hopes in that um, because the Ark is something that I intend to get rid of. I won't need it anymore. Why? Because I'll be there myself. And yes, uh, no one's going to ask for where's the Ark of the Covenant because there's going to be someone on the throne personally that that which Moses saw in the heavenly realms will be down here and that person, Jesus Christ, will be there sitting on the throne and they're not going to even ask. They're not going to remember. They're not going to visit. They're not going to talk about it. It's just not going to be uh, of any concern. It says in verse 16. Why? Because in verse 17, it's going to be the throne of the Lord. Not just for Israel, but for all the nations. That Jesus Christ will take his place there. He will rule and reign uh, from the holy city, Jerusalem. um, Not from the Ark of the Covenant. Not through that. Not through the Shekinah glory, but personally. By his personal presence there. Taking up residence in this place. And at that time it describes... That Israel and Judah will be one. They'll be gathered together in all of this 
wonder begins to be promised. Um, and then, just as we are starting to go into this reminiscent phase of eyes glassing over of how wonderful it's going to be there, and just as we're starting to go, oh, wow, all of a sudden we are slapped up, but how can I give that to you? And oh, that we would confront people with that when we're talking about heaven and we're talking about um, the promises of God and the power of our salvation, that every now and then we would just interrupt the conversation as we're waxing eloquent on the wonder of what waits us in eternity, um, that we might uh, uh, shake ourselves a little bit. But how can God give that? to? How can we feel secure that that is ours given how we live? And so interjected here, beginning verse 19, right in the midst of what really just looked like it's just starting to develop and God is just just touching the surface of what it's going to be like in the millennial kingdom um, and into eternity, uh, we start to get a flavor for it and a taste for it. And just as we're starting to, to think, oh, this is going to be so wonderful, we're suddenly brought back to reality that, wait, um, there's something staying between us and that. And that is our rebellion, our idolatry. And so God says, wait a minute, how can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage of the host of nations? How can I do it? Given your current conditions, well, you can't. And so there has to be something happen between uh, the the days of Jeremiah and the false, the pretentious claim to repentance that didn't actually touch the heart was just external and between that and what God required for you to enter into his rest into his time of blessing and that is going to be characterized by this requirement that God answers his own question he says you shall call me my father and not turn away from me this is what is required How can he give that wonderful thing to you when you are out there playing the harlot with these other gods? Um, No, it is going to be conditioned upon a time. This is the answer to the question. When can God give this to you? How can God give this to you? He gives this to Israel. He offers this up to Judah and Israel as one nation, this personal reign of God, conditioned upon them coming and saying, God is our Father, and we're not going to turn away from Him to anyone else. We will reserve all of our worship, all of our adoration, all of our service to Him and Him alone. And again, a reminder that's not their current condition. That's what they have to come to, but that's not where they are. Where they are in verse 20 is they're a wife that's departed from her husband, and that's how they have treated God. With that kind of treachery, that kind of of, uh, of, of violation of their covenant agreements, um, and they have essentially, he says, perverted their way and forgotten the Lord their God. And in that condition, what he is waiting for is again that voice of weeping and of wailing because there's a brokenness over their sinful state. Their brokenness that this is how they it was. This is how their heart has been fashioned. That there is this disloyalty in them um, toward their one true and living God. 
the one who has done so much for them. And so God waits, and he calls, and he invites, and he commands, and, and he gives opportunity after opportunity. And again, verse 22, return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Return. Come back. Repent. This is the invitation of God. This is him standing at the doorway, gazing down the road of your rebellion and saying, when you stop going that way and turn around and start coming this way, then I will start preparing the feast. Then I will start preparing the celebration for your arrival when I see your face turning towards me instead of going away from me. That's what I'm waiting for. I stand at the door and wait. And I have all the means to celebrate it. But it waits for you to turn. It waits for you to make that decision. And not just, um, you know, just looking back. Not just looking back while you're walking away, but a genuine full turning around and saying, I have gone wrong. And it's time to go right and to return. And... Here in the middle of a verse, the verse divisions here are, are almost are horrible. I, I, I don't know who divided these, but in this section of Scripture, they did an injustice, I think, to it. Um, here in the middle of a verse, by the way, if your Bible is, has written out the, the, the prose format, um, it has a significant divide here in the middle of verse 22, and that divide is going to be very important to us. It's the introduction of a, of a new way of the prophet preaching and that is by him taking up the role of the repentant and jeremiah is going to do this more than anyone else he's not the only one that does i don't want you to think that the other prophets did in fact um, most of them did at some point respond um, to the message of god Uh, even in a daniel we find him, a, a, a chapter pretty much committed to his uh, repentant prayer, not only for himself, but for his people. And we find Jeremiah probably the, one of the more sensitive of all of them, even though he's tackling some pretty tough things and dealing with some people that uh, the priests and the prophets of Israel primarily, um, the, and their falsehood and their treachery, um, their betrayal of God to the people, um, we find him being very sensitive to their need to respond. And while he has the strength in him to persist in ministry, because God had given to that, remember, we studied that, we also find a tenderness there, and it is that that we want to speak to a little bit this morning, because we're going to, it's going to come up again and again throughout the book of Jeremiah, and so I want to introduce it properly, so that as we approach it, you'll have the foundation of hopefully this message um, to uh, uh, address it. Um, We find in many instances that God tells the prophets right up front, no one's going to listen to you. Um, Ezekiel, he tells Ezekiel, I'm going to give you a forehead of flint because you're going to need it because you're going to bang your head against a wall that won't come down. And you're going to have to do that the entirety of your ministry. We saw it here in Jeremiah where God says, um, you know, you're just going to have to be strong. I know you're young, but you're going to have to be strong. Because you're not going to have a lot of people respond to you. And we find that very 
characteristic of the prophets going to Israel and going to Judah. Um, interestingly, we don't have those that indicative of the prophets going from Daniel to Jonah and those that are going to um, some of the other nations. And so, but we have this and, and this idea that there is a a desensitized that there has to be this 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 immovable object that that is the prophets that they just can't be touched and a hardness to them a strength to them and we don't often associate that with a sensitivity to the needs Um, and so god forewarns them that you're not going to be well received and so there has to be a certain stubbornness in your message there has to be a certain stick-to-itiveness in your ministry that is not going to be measured by how many people are applauding you, how many people are turning from their sin or the conditions of the land. You're just going to have to keep preaching the truth uh, regardless. And that is very much so the case. But with Jeremiah, what we see that countered with is an extraordinary sensitivity to his people. Even as they resist the message of God, even as they resist him and want to kill him, we find him being sensitive, but the sensitivity is on their behalf before God. And this uh, we need to be sure to uh, include in any ministry to this day. Uh, There's a danger And the danger is that if God tells us that no one in the last days is going to want to hear the truth, the danger is for us to take on the attitude and the sensitivities of a guy named Jonah. Right? That's kind of where it can lead to very quickly. Where we come in and we declare, Thus says the Lord, you're all dead people walking. And it's going to take just a little bit more time and you're going to find out the truth. And you'll see how God's anger looks like. And then we go up on a hill and we cross our arms and plop ourselves down and just wait to watch it happen. And in that sense, Jonah is pretty much the opposite of Jeremiah and the opposite of what we ought to be. Remember that Jonah wasn't a very willing prophet to begin with. Not them. He didn't want the Ninevites to repent. That's why he tried to run the other direction. He knew what it meant for to send a prophet to a people. It meant that they have a chance. They have an opportunity to get right with God and be delivered. And Jonah didn't want that. And then when he finally is, by God's intervention, um, forced to do the job, and I, sometimes I feel like that a little bit. I feel like I have to do the job, but boy, I just don't want to sometimes. But I have to. We must. And it's a simple thing to to latch hold of the attitude of Jonah that, okay, I'll go and tell them, but I have no expectation. In fact, I don't really even want them to repent. I really want you to judge them. And we face a world today that is very easy for us to fall into the Jonah spirit where we're going to preach the truth, and we almost dare people to repent. 
You know, it's not we're going to beg them to. We're not going to call them to it. Um, like Jeremiah, I mean, look at how many times return, 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 return. I mean, God keeps pouring it out there. I'll take you back, but you've got to come back my way, but you've got to return. And I'm going to send you shepherds, and they're going to give you, I mean, it's going to, I have some wonderful things in store, and, and, but you've got to take away your sin, because your sin is what's stopping it. And we see this, in, and this is the spirit that God wants us to minister the gospel, even the gospel of, you deserve God's judgment. It is not the spirit of Jonah. And, and by the way, um, the Ninevites aren't damaged by the spirit of Jonah, right? Are the Ninevites damaged by someone going and speaking the truth uh, with less of God's love than they should have? No. The truth, God honors the truth. Um, who's damaged by it? Jonah. He's the one that is damaged by his own spirit. He is the one that is chastised by the one who sent him and is um, purposely put through some misery to direct his, redirect his attitudes and to say, hey, why don't you have any mercy? This was a mission of mercy. And he went to do the mission of mercy without a spirit of mercy. And we must be careful not to fall in this trap. I have to be careful not to fall in that trap. And I hear some uh, brethren that are, almost take glory in the fact that nobody wants to hear them. Um, but the fact is, is that there is no glory in that. Rather, we have a spirit of, of, of heartache over that. And this must be sustained. Even with a forehead of flint, we need to have these fleshy hearts that are touched by what we see around us. And as no matter how wicked it gets, no matter how evil it gets, no matter how persistent they seem, no matter how antagonistic they are to our message and to our very persons, um, we are bent on their good and we see their need and we long for their deliverance. And that drives us to fulfilling ministry. Fulfilling not in terms of their salvation, fulfilling in terms of our um, sense of, a, of, of doing the work of God with the Spirit of God to the pleasure of God. And Jonah certainly did the work of God. Yes, he spoke the truth. Eventually, he spoke the truth to him. But he didn't have the Spirit of God, and, it, and his work wasn't pleasing to God. And so God, at the end of his ministry, chastises him. It's the last thing we find. God, it's one of the saddest prophetic books in the Bible. It's because the last words in it aren't encouraging at all. It's God chastising his own prophet for having a spirit of no mercy. And so we go out with a message of mercy, and it is very easy for us not to have the spirit of mercy because we have been calloused by the rough handling that we have experienced by people rejecting it and not wanting to hear it and, and, and ridiculing the truth, that we start to get the, the Jonah calluses. We start to get a, a spirit that I'm going to tell you the truth, 
but you're not going to believe it, and, and you're going to get judged. And I'm looking forward to that day. Jeremiah shows us a better way, a better spirit. Jeremiah shows us what it looks like to maintain a sensitive heart even to the most vicious and vile offenders of God. And here, in the middle of a verse, (laughs) we change speakers. It is no longer God speaking, but now it is going to be Jeremiah speaking, not for Jeremiah, but for his target audience. Jeremiah is going to take on, and, and this, we need to see what's going on here, okay? So Jeremiah is over here speaking, this is the word of the Lord to you. And what we have just read in the verses is Jeremiah coming out of Jeremiah's mouth, where he has now associated himself with the Lord. He is the spokesperson for the Lord. Here it comes. Now Jeremiah has just stepped over and said, now I'm going to be your voice. I'm going to come and now I'm going to stand on your side. I'm going to be over here and count myself among you, you rebellious people, and I'm going to voice for you. I've voiced for the Lord. He's been over there and he's voiced and he's going to do that a lot. Thus says the Lord. The Lord says, here's what he says. Now I'm going to voice for you. And notice that he goes into first person plural. Which means that between the two people he's voicing for, who does he more strongly associate himself with? Does he say, the Lord and I have this to tell you. (laughs) Thus says Jeremiah and God. No. He doesn't say, we want you to repent. It says, the Lord says repent. God says, God says, God says, God says. So while he's being the voice of God, he doesn't make himself in the company of God. He recognizes that God is God. That Jeremiah isn't more like God. He's more like the people God's talking to. So when he comes over here and he's going to be the voice of the people, the voice of the audience, in this case it's northern tribes of Israel, and when he's going to be their voice, he says, we. And he associates himself with them. And this, I believe, is the very first facet of maintaining a tender heart towards our audience, towards those who reject us, hate us, spit on us, abuse us, want to shoot us and bomb us and and for how do you stay sensitive to those people? How do you love them? How do you want their deliverance when all we really want them is judged? Why don't we just nuke that one town where all those terrorists come from? Well, that's not a very Christian thing to do. Frankly. Jeremiah calls us to associate with the sinners and not the Holy One. And this is the first step of maintaining a tenderness toward those that you're seeking to reach with the truth. 
is to remind ourselves on a regular basis, I am more like them than I am like him. And I'm not very far removed from their condition. And so, in the middle of this, verse 22, Jeremiah does the first step, and he says, indeed, we do come to you. And it's when we begin to recognize that in this scale, we are a whole lot closer to the sinner than to the Holy One of of God in our practice and in our attitudes and while our position in Christ is that we are sons of God and we, and, we, and we have that, we have this full justification and glorification um, that we, we recognize that, in our, that our natural man is still per, hanging around. He is powerless, but, but he's still present. And, and we tend to give him too much attention as a corpse that we carry with us in his flesh. And, and it, it brings us nearer to associating with these that we call harlots and idolaters and and the covetous and, and all the these over here of Israel and Judah. And so he makes that association and then he recognizes that you're the Lord, our God. And I'd like to compare this part of Jeremiah with what happened to Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah. When Isaiah is invited up to the heavenly realm and he says, Ah! Well, he didn't really say that, but it, it was pretty much like that. Woe is me! I'm undone! I don't belong here! I'm a man of unclean lips who live among a people of unclean lips! You see that? I'm one of them. And this is the key to keeping a tender heart, even to those that just want to drill us every time we mention Jesus and curse at us. And so we remember we're more like them than we're like him. And this is Jeremiah's declaration. We recognize you're the Lord. You're God and we aren't. And I'm not so far removed from these people and in this scale of a hundred, I, I they might be one, but I'm only about five and God is way out there at a hundred. My association on that level is much closer to them in my experience, in my attitudes, yes, in my position as a believer, in my judicial stance, I am over there standing in the righteousness of Christ. Absolutely. But I recognize that I'm still falling to temptation. I still have to confess my sin on a regular basis. I still want to go after the interests of my own evil heart. And I have to wage this war. And so I'm with them. And you are the Lord. You are God. There is no other like you. And then verse 23, again, everything here is worthless. It's vain. It's pointless. Truly in vain. From the hills or the multitude of the mountains can, can, there, can hope come from. Um, what can deliver us here? 
Uh, let's look at these people that we have become hard-hearted to. Let, let's consider the, the, the Ninevites of our land. And let's be careful not to sit there and say, they don't deserve it. Well, did you deserve it? Did you deserve Christ dying for you? I didn't. But let's put ourselves in there a little bit. Um, how many prophets of God went to Nineveh exactly? How many opportunities have they really had to hear the truth? How much access do they have? Here, Israel and Judah had the truth, and, and, and even in those conditions, um, the first thing that, that Jeremiah wants them to move towards is to recognize that all these other things men hope in, the groves on the high places and the idols that you make, they're worthless. They're going to do nothing for you. But the fact is that many of those that we encounter are putting all their trust in those. That's where their hope lies. That's where they think they're going to get deliverance. And they are in despair. And they've never come to the point of realizing this stuff is pointless. Well, some of them have. And they've gone into nihilism and and just... total despair and like it's all worthless it's all vain it's all pointless Um, and they go into depressed rightly so depressed state because they recognize there's no hope in all these things but we who have the truth have access to the fact that the Lord our God is salvation. There really is hope there. There is a sureness. There is a deliverance. There is a confidence that we can have in him because he has worked in the past and he has worked into today and he will work into the future and we have that knowledge. It's, it's, while men try to dispute it, they, they are crushed by the facts if they ever bothered to really to study them and to consider them. Um, and the evidences that we have all around us of the working, the moving of God and, and the faithfulness of this record we have before us. Um, but those that we hate and, and have no care for, even if we try to share them the gospel, we don't really expect or even want them to get saved. Um, have they had that access to the truth? Maybe you're the only prophet. Maybe you're the only Jonah. Maybe it's the first time they found out that there really is true salvation, a real hope. And it's in the Jehovah, the Lord our God. The next facet of this repentance is seeing the full measure of trying to do it your way and seeing what it has accomplished. What is what does this hopelessness look like? And um, verse 24 begins to describe it and into 25. It says, um, we've been enveloped essentially by shame. And everything we work for, everything our forefathers worked for are go- is gone. It's just being devoured. And remember, um, who Jeremiah is associating with here is not Judah, but Israel, who had already been led off into captivity. And, it, and they're looking around saying, everything's lost. 
Remember, we lived in paneled houses. We had flocks. We had herds. We had, we had um, gold and silver utensils we were eating and bowls we were eating out of. Um, we had all of this, and now it's gone. And we are, our, our rich apparel has been torn off, and we've been chased up into Assyria, uh, destitute and naked, um, if alive at all. And, and we are in this shame We have lost our sons, our daughters, and we have nothing but our own disgrace that is to remind us. And and so when we went our own way, this is what is brought to us. God brought us into this bountiful and pleasant land and many blessings, and our sin has brought us shame, disgrace, and loss. And this is what genuine repentance looks like. It is recognizing that all the efforts that I've done, not just my sin, but even my efforts outside of trusting the Lord, um, is just going to bring shame, disgrace, and loss. And communicating that, that's all I bring to the table. Instead, we find people saying, well, I, you know, God's going to, when he gets me, he's going to really get someone. <laughs> really? He's not going to ever get you if that's your spirit. Because you're too full of yourself. And it is this spirit, this brokenness of recognizing that nothing but disgrace awaits us when we do it our own way. And again, that includes Jeremiah. You know, if it was all done Kirk's way on planet Earth it would be disgraceful, shameful, and full of loss. i got to tell you that. As much as I believe that I could fix everything, (laughs) I would ruin it. You see, I'm more like them than like him. We go our own way, we try to do it ourselves, we try to fix everything our way, and we disregard God's word, and the end result will be misery, loss, shame, reproach is the word here, I've been using the word disgrace, um, that just covers over it, and it's understanding that we have sinned against the Lord our God, not just me, but we, and all that we would come to understand that I know that we have individualized salvation, maybe too much. That we And I love the passages in Acts where whole families came to Christ at the same time. Cornelius and his whole household come to Christ. These people movements. Um, and we have so individualized the working of God that uh, we don't think of praying a prayer of we very often. And we have kind of isolated and insulated ourselves from the compassionate we prayers. Not we the church, but we, humanity. We, sinners. We, who call by your name, who are your nation and yet have not followed after you. We. We'll pray I and we'll pray they, but we'll seldom pray we and refer to us with all the rest of mankind that is lost and perishing. 
and this I think brings to some degree the the hardness and callousness of Jonah that we need to guard ourselves from is that there is a a corporateness to sin that we need to accept responsibility for. That if I don't take some action in society um, to bring society out of sin, not just me and mine, but, but the larger community, if I don't stand and say that is wrong and this is right and, and draw men and, and be a, a pressure point for that within society, um, that we fail in some respects to really invest ourselves in the whole idea of the we sinned. We and our fathers, we and generations even in the past, that we want to take corrective action not only for myself and my sin, but not that I can deliver them, but recognizing that I have some culpability for where all of this has gone and where it has come to. That we have a, a we assignment there. Certainly uh, there's an individual one that you have but not to the exclusion of and not to insulate you from your responsibility societally to recognize that there are societal sins that we need to address and be willing to speak out against and to uh, be willing to direct ourselves and saying, we've sinned. We've let this happen. We have. As a church, we have as a nation, um, not that our nation was ever Christian, but we, we have allowed this. We have, we have, in some cases, we have even encouraged it. We have encouraged capitalism, and thus we have encouraged covetousness. Let's, let's, not, let's understand that those two are pretty much interdependent upon each other. Well, purpose of capitalism, get your cut. Is there some broken things with socialism? Yes. But we have cried from pulpits that the Constitution and capitalism are, are right next to the, the Bible, and they aren't. But we have declared that so earnestly that the entire Christian community believes it, and we're not ready to say we've sinned, we and our forefathers. Believe it or not, just because you're a signer of the Constitution doesn't mean you infallible or a descendant of one of them. They made mistakes. And so is our society today. And we can throw our hands up like Jonah and go sit up on the mountaintop and wait for God to wreak his judgment on them. Or we can do as Jeremiah and say, we have sinned. Not just recently, but we have persisted in this. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. We, our society. And thus, tenderize our own heart so that we can persist in the right kind of ministry. And the right kind of ministry is two-pronged, remember. It is the truth, and we can't compromise the truth. But the other prong of ministry, uh, and this flint, forehead of flint, uncompromising commitment to truth, 
We're not changing the message, okay? It will not happen. We can't let it happen or there is no hope. But the other prong of ministry that pleases God is a tenderheartedness that recognizes these people need the Lord. They need the truth. And I'm more like them than not. These are my people. These are the sinners that I was delivered out of. These are who I was and still to some degree with that old nature persisting and hanging around I'm still connected to. And I can pray these prayers that we have sinned. We disobey the Lord. And instead we hear them pointing the bony fingers around and saying, oh, those, that political group, that political group, that political group, those people over there, and how easy it is. And we want to blame Planned Parenthood, and we want to blame the the, the um, labor movement. We want to blame the Democrats or the Republicans. Or, um, we want to blame... Wall Street, we want to uh, blame the homosexual community and we want to say, oh, they have sinned. They are sinning. They are sinning. And we rightly have no audience with any of those people because they see your spirit. That we don't hear pastors get up saying, we are sinning. We are not obeying the voice of the Lord. We and our forefathers are in shame. It's always them. And because of that, we grow calloused to them. And we become much more like the Jonah than the Jeremiah. And I just want to challenge you this season right now. You're going to see people fighting over whether it's... You're going to find... Poor La Cueva to take down their tree because their bear tree because some rabbi says it's a Christian symbol, um, and then you have all the Christians going, "That's not our symbol; it's a pagan thing," and and we're trying to stay balanced and um, in all of that. Don't become calloused. Associate yourself with the lowly. Let it be our problem, not their problem. That we might have this, the, the tenderness to try to help them be delivered from the problem. And the problem is our sin. The solution is God's Son. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And we do pray for our land, for our people, for our church, for our families. And Lord, we pray that you might give us a heart to minister. And Lord, we have committed ourselves to your truth and we seek diligently to remain steadfast and immovable in it, as you've called us to, and rightly so. Lord, we have been derelict in maintaining a sensitivity of associating ourselves 
with the lowly, with the, those in great need and spiritual despair. And so we have grown callous to them. And Lord, we do not want to end our ministry in this age with your rebuke as Jonah did. Lord, give us hearts of mercy, even to those that hate us, despitefully use us, to those that would want us silenced at all costs. Lord, remind us that we are not so very different from them. And only the only difference is theirs by your grace. And your mercy you have already extended toward us and desire for them. And so Lord, we thank you for the testimony of Jeremiah and those of his ilk that have recognized their own stainedness that associates us with the lost even as we anticipate the joys that are waiting for us because we have received the stain-cleansing power of your Son's sacrifice. Lord, we thank you so much. We pray you might find us this season and that it might persist to have hearts tender, merciful to those who have not received mercy from any. And Lord, that you might forgive us where we have failed to represent you to our people. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.